Amen. Church, it's so good to worship with you this morning. And I invite you to open with me into the book of Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, and we're going to be studying this morning the first 12 verses of Acts chapter 20. Our mission to reach the spiritually lost and the spiritually dying becomes more difficult and more discouraging every single day. I think all of us who are engaged in this mission would agree. Now, so many factors contribute to that difficulty and that sense of discouragement, that feeling of, what's, what's the point? Are we getting anywhere in this mission? I'll point to a few of these. Our political climate, the turmoil of this season, makes it difficult. People are distracted and they're forgetful that political personalities are only temporary. It becomes all the more polarizing today to assert that we have a king who is in fact sovereign over all. That elections of public officials, no matter who the candidate is and no matter the result of an election, does not affect that God is still sovereign. That's a polarizing statement, though, in this culture. Cultural apathy makes this ministry, this mission, discouraging. People seem to not really care about the gospel. People seem to not see their need for Jesus as they may have decades ago. We all know that the economic uncertainties of this season make it difficult as well. Because the gospel doesn't directly address issues of poverty or people who are living with very little means. And then there's those unique difficulties for each and every person, right? I mean, the things that are unique to you even right now. If none of those things hit you where you were, maybe it's some health struggles you're dealing with. Maybe it's some family drama you're walking through right now, or, or, or maybe it's some emotional distress, even depression at this season of your life, and you say, this makes this mission either unimportant altogether or discouraging. All of these things distract us from what really matters as the body of Christ. That's why this is important. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. We should, or you might say we must, encourage one another as we go on mission together. We've got to be encouragers to one another at all times in all seasons. But the reality is we're not wired to naturally be encouragers. I'm your pastor, and I'll just transparently say to you, I'm not naturally wired to be an encourager. Full transparency here. Listen, I have concerns of my life as well. I'm a real person with real problems, and, and I have issues in my own life that I walk through. There was a picture taken last night of our family that so accurately sums all of this up. And get on Facebook, you can see it for yourself. We had a family photo taken. We went to see some Christmas lights. And we're all sitting there together in front of this beautiful picture behind us. It's Christmas lights, uh, and it's just a beautiful display. And, and Cherie is looking at the camera, and she's smiling, and I'm sitting next to her, and I'm smiling, and everything looks normal until you look a little closer. Because in my arms, I've got Rosie, and, and she's smiling and being all cute, but she's kind of looking off in the distance. And then in Cherie's arms, she's got Evie and Ivy, and you can imagine, they did not want to have a picture taken, and they're squirming out of her arms, right? And, and then there's Harper, and she's sitting there, and she's looking very 
politely and calmly at the camera. And then Hudson, bless his heart, he's a foot down from everyone. And he's sitting there just staring into space, right? Like, that's our family, right? And I tell you that, not to poke fun at my family or my kids. I tell you that to say this. I have a real family. And guess what? We navigate real issues and very real challenges just like you. And it makes it hard to look past those things and realize that my calling as your pastor is to encourage you, despite the season I might be in. Two things I want you to remember as we walk through this passage together. Two reasons why encouraging others is uniquely difficult. These are not going to be on the screen, so I'm going to walk through them slowly, write them down on the back of the page there. We're going to come back to them, so you want to remember this. Number one, we're too busy to slow down and encourage others. We got a lot going on. Every person in this room brings their own difficulties and challenges to the table. And we acknowledge at the beginning of the service this morning that this season in particular is very fast paced. We got to fight to slow down. We got to fight to slow down and enjoy this. We got to fight to slow down and encourage others. But secondly, we're too absorbed with our own struggles. We're too absorbed with our own struggles. Now, I, I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory way. I'm not poking at your particular struggles or minimizing those things. But the reality is, as we get more and more consumed with our struggles, we take our eyes off of the mission of God. What we're going to see in this passage this morning is Paul demonstrates for us what it means to encourage others. Now, I think you would agree, if anybody had a right to be distracted by the season of life he was in or the difficulties he had walked through, it was the Apostle Paul. My goodness, the guy was thrown in prison time and time again. He had been beaten with sticks and stoned and left for dead and all these sorts of things. He had a right to be discouraged. And yet, he remained faithful to the mission of God. He continued to encourage the church at Ephesus. We're going to see that. And then he moved beyond that and encouraged others as well. I invite you to stand and honor the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. It will be on the screen in front of you. I'm going to read all 12 of these verses because it's just a short passage of Scripture. Let me read it to you. It says, After the uproar was over, Paul sent for the disciples, encouraged them, and after saying farewell, departed to go to Macedonia. And when he had passed through those areas and offered them many words of encouragement, he came to Greece, and he stayed there three months. The Jews plotted against him when he was about to set sail for Syria, and so he, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Purus uh, from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. Sorry, Miss Joe, or I'm sorry, Miss Leslie, I apologize. <laughs> it's on the screen, just trust that, okay? These men went on ahead and waited for us in Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread. In five days, we reached them at Troas, where we spent seven days. On the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to depart the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the room upstairs where he was, they were assembled, and a young man named Eutychus was sitting on a window, a windowsill, and he sank into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. 
when he was overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was picked up dead. But Paul went down, bent over him, embraced him, and said, Don't be alarmed, because he's alive. After going upstairs, breaking the bread and eating, Paul talked a long time until dawn, and then he left. They brought the boy home alive and were greatly comforted. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this word. Thank you for this time we have to fellowship around your word. I pray that you would make it clear. I pray that you would encourage us and challenge us as we pray every single week, and we mean that. God, by the power of your spirit, Lord, I pray that you would bless this word. Lord, we trust in the promise of scripture that when your word goes out, it never returns void. So meet us where we are in our unique circumstances. And Lord, I pray that you'll speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. You might have picked up on it as I was reading, but I want to kind of frame this passage uh, the way that Luke frames it with the word encourage. You see there in verses 1 and 2, it's mentioned twice that Paul was encouraging those he was speaking to. So he was encouraging them to remain faithful. We don't know exactly what he was preaching at that time, but he was encouraging the believers. And then you see in verse 12 that the passage ends, it says they were greatly comforted. Well, what's interesting is, although in English we translate those words differently, it's the same exact word in the Greek language. The same word for comfort at the end of the passage is used at the beginning in verses 1 and 2 to talk about this work of encouragement. So it frames everything we're looking at, and really this word in its original context, meant this. It meant to call together. In other words, what Paul is doing here is he's saying he's calling together all of those who are discouraged, and he's saying, I want to meet you where you are, and I want to encourage you, okay? And so that's what we're doing this morning as we reflect upon this passage as well. Now, the passage is broken in half with Paul's travel agenda. It moves very quickly. It can get a little bit confusing, so let's just break it down in two parts. Verses 1 through 6 cover a period of about two years as Paul was finishing up his ministry in Ephesus. He was traveling throughout Macedonia and then ultimately to Greece. Now the second half slows down quite a bit. It covers a period of just seven days, the scripture tells us. And each part of this journey involves different people, different circumstances, and a unique ministry. But his ministry to encourage the church ultimately remained exactly the same. So first of all, consider this from verses 1 through 6. The church is encouraged when we partner together in ministry. In verses 1 through 6, we see Paul linking arms with people in ministry. And and you don't get lost in the travel agenda or the funny names. We're going to go back to those in a moment. All of this paints a picture of partnership, and this is what ultimately will encourage the church as we move forward. First of all, look at verse 1. I want you to see what has taken place. If you weren't with us last week, I'm going to kind of rehash what happens in chapter 19. It says there, at the beginning of chapter 20, it says, after the uproar was over. over. Now, in, in chapter 19, there was this riot, it would seem, there were, it was a really comical picture. The seven sons of Siva, you might remember, they went in to cast out a demon. 
They didn't know what they were doing. They got in over their heads. They went in with their pants on. They came out with their pants off, running for their lives. Y'all remember that, right? And so it was, and then what ensued after that was uh, there was a burning of some uh, magic books, and then there was this one individual who was upset because this ministry had encroached on the economy. And so then there's this great riot at uh, the amphitheater there in Ephesus, and things don't look good. But then we moved very quickly last week, and we saw that the uproar ended. Ultimately, everything was peaceful again. And so that's what's taken place up to this point. And that's why it's important what Paul does in verse 1. It says he sent for the disciples. He sent for the disciples. Listen carefully. The fruit of discipleship is seen in ministry partnerships. Don't miss the significance when Paul calls for the disciples. I want you to understand, although things had been uncomfortable in Ephesus, there were still believers there. They had not abandoned the mission of God. They had not jumped ship and left the church. There were still disciples there, and so Paul calls all of them together, and he assembles them in one place. If you look back at chapter 19 and verse 10, you see there that this was a ministry of two years in Ephesus. A two-year work was coming to a close at the beginning of chapter 20. That's significant. Listen, real ministry is not happening unless disciples are being made. I'll say that again. It's very important. Real ministry is not happening unless disciples are being made. We can get busy with all sorts of things. We can get busy with programs. We can get busy with with doing things a certain way and and keeping a certain schedule. We can get busy even with benevolence. This was something, I'll, I'll be honest with you, was a trap for me in my first year as your pastor. Every person that knocked on this door, I would help. And we still help. We still serve in this community. Don't miss that. But what happened is I would spend my entire day meeting a very practical, physical need, and I would lose sight of the the work of the gospel that needed to be done. And and so listen, we can get busy with good things and miss out on the most important things. we got to be discerning and wise as we serve others around us. Listen, we can get busy with community involvement. We can be all about making sure the community knows that we're here, which is a good thing, but we can't miss the work of making disciples. We're Baptists, and we can get real busy with fellowship. We get together, we share a meal together, we have a good time together, whether we're grilling hot dogs or eating a potluck dinner next door. Listen, we can get busy with those things, but listen, that is not real ministry. Making disciples is real ministry, and not one of those things completes the work of making disciples by itself. Listen, Paul had been doing real ministry. He'd been doing it for two years, it says. He was making disciples, and disciples encourage and move the church forward. Now let's look closer at verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3, we have uh, ultimately things conclude with Paul going, it says, to Greece. Now, Greece is another uh, name for Corinth. Now, you know Corinth. Uh, we got the books or the letters, First and Second Corinthians in the New Testament. So you know this place. Well, it's referred to in this location as Greece. Here's why that's important. Paul wrote, by all accounts, and most people agree on this, he wrote First Corinthians before leaving Ephesus. 
Okay, so if you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in verses 1 through 11, I'm not going to bore you with reading that to you, but listen, we find there evidence that Paul had written a first letter while he was still in Ephesus. It's called there a painful letter, and it addressed controversy. Well, you can read the churches, uh, the letters to the church at Corinth, and you can see those letters are kind of scathing and painful. Corinth was a mess. Paul would have had every reason to kind of keep Corinth at arm's length, right? And say, hey, listen, I'll just write some letters to them over there, and maybe they'll figure things out on their own. That's why when you get to the end of verse 2, it's so significant. It says, he came to Greece. And in the beginning of verse 3, it says, he stayed for three months. Listen carefully. Genuine partnership involves physical presence. It involves being with people. You've got to enjoy being around people in order to genuinely minister to people, in order to genuinely encourage people. Up until two years ago, it was never a question that the church should gather in one place together. No one ever had to tackle that question, is it important? Is it safe? Is it appropriate? Is it necessary and needed? But if that incident two years ago, the global pandemic, if it proved anything to those of you gathered in this room right now, we realize gathering together is important. It's important to be in each other's presence. We need that. But I want to take this a step further. That global pandemic, it caused us to lose, in some ways, the regularity of gathering together. I read some statistics this week from a gentleman named Tom Rayner. He's a, a, like a church statistician um, in the Baptist denomination in particular. And he wrote an article talking about regular church attendance and how that's beginning to fade even now. He wrote and he said, you know, two decades ago, regular church attendance meant gathering once a week. Churches had three opportunities together, right? Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. That was normal. And you were going to be at church once or twice a week, and that was the norm. Some of you, when you were raised, you remember this, right? Mom or dad, they drug you to church. I remember it. Man, we'd come in on Wednesday night, and we might scarf down a peanut butter sandwich, and we were going to church on Wednesday night, whether I liked it or not. That was regular church attendance. Well, times have changed, and, and that's understandable. But even two years ago, a regular church attender went to church twice a month. You were there 50% of the time, or else you weren't considered a regular church attender. But here's the reality now. And a lot of cultural situations change this. The once-a-month churchgoer is becoming the fastest-growing group within the church now. The once-a-month churchgoer. What happens is, it, it, that pandemic, it said, you know, it shifted our mindset. That we can survive without this, maybe. It's not as important to us anymore. And, and I just want to challenge you from what we see here. Physical presence gathering together is important. Don't overlook that. Paul writes, most likely it was Paul, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 24 and 25. He said, and let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting together together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. And all the more as we see the day approaching. Listen, Paul knew that physical 
presence, gathering together was important. It communicated purposeful encouragement. And so we should also strive for that. Let's consider verses four and five. Here's what we see there. Ministry partnerships expand the reach of the gospel. I'm not gonna re rehash those names to you. I'm not gonna read over that again. You're welcome. And I stumbled through those. I want you to know, I, when I read a big name or place like that, I have listened to someone else read it first. I'm not just kind of shooting off the cuff. And so they might have been wrong, and so therefore I was wrong. But I gave it my best effort. Here, here's what's important, though. When I see a list of names like this, though, or a list of places, I get excited. Because instead of reading past it really quickly, I want to think, you know, what was the reason for including that list of names. I mean, these people were important. And, and Luke, when he wrote this, he had a reason for recording these really hard to pronounce names. And, and it paints a picture of something. So let me walk through these with you. And I want you to see these seven men that are named here and the picture that they paint. First of all, there was this gentleman named Sopater. And he was from, it says, Berea or from Corinth, most likely. And so he was from the place where Paul had traveled to, okay? So that's significant. That means Paul, when he got to Corinth, he had kind of linked arms with this guy. And then there's these next two guys. They're mentioned together, Aristarchus and Segundus. And it says they're there from Thessalonica. Again, this is, this is significant. It means that, that Paul had ministered in that place, and, and guess what? They had locked arms together, and they were serving together now. Then there's this guy named Gaius. And he was from this place called Derby. If you look at that closer, this was Galatia. You know the book of Galatians, the letter that Paul wrote to Galatia. So there again, this guy's painting a picture of how Paul administered there and served there. And then we have Timothy, and, and you know Timothy. Paul wrote to Timothy, first and second Timothy, and he was from the same region as Gaius, this region of Galatia. There's these last two. It says they're from the province of Asia. What, what does this mean? It, it means that Paul's ministry had expanded. It means that it had expanded and it had taken root in other places. It represented the extent of Paul's ministry. Here's what this means for us. We have to be intentional about partnering with others in this mission. We don't do this mission in a silo. No, we, as the church, the assembled saints... At First Baptist Church of Cave Spring, we link arms with others to reach the ends of the earth. We don't throw that out there as some sort of pop dream. Listen, we believe that as we link arms with people, we're reaching the ends of the earth. Let me give you some examples. As we give to the Floyd County Baptist Association, and you donate the food that is sitting out in the lobby of the church right now, there are people coming every single Tuesday to that office in Rome, and they're being fed. We're not physically there. there there's, uh, Steve Fowler goes and he delivers the food and he shares the devotion and that's our physical representation there. But other than that, we're not loading up a van and going over there. But yet, partnership make it, makes it happen. We partner with the Southern Baptist Convention of Churches. We talk about this. Let me explain it carefully to you. When we give a portion of what you give through the offering, when we give that to the Southern Baptist Convention, a lot of things happen. It funds seminary education in places like New Orleans, Louisville, Kentucky, and Wake Forest, North Carolina, where I'm a student. It funds those things and it makes it affordable so that regular people, people who don't have tons of money, can go to these schools and 
be trained in ministry. Your giving makes that happen. It also means that church planting is happening even in the United States in some of the most unchurched places in our country. Places like San Francisco, where there's hardly any evangelical churches. Guess what? We're not sending someone physically there. But as we give, God makes it possible. And of course, you know that we have missionary partners through the International Mission Board who are working in the hardest to reach places of the world to proclaim the gospel in places that have never heard the gospel. And even our church has entered into a very intentional partnership with a family serving in South Asia. I got word this week that even right now, right now, audio Bibles are being heard and listened to in the mountains of that region. And people are hearing the gospel who have never once heard the name of Jesus because of partnership. That's encouraging. Notice this also. The gospel makes ministry partnerships possible. So ultimately, everything hinges on the gospel. All of this happens because of the gospel. In verse 6, there's a, just a very brief note of what happened before they went to this next location. It says that before they sailed away, they stayed for the festival of unleavened bread. Here's what that means. In that understanding, that Christian understanding of this festival, this was Easter. And so what, what the writer is saying to us here is saying, hey, Paul hung out for a little while so he could celebrate Easter with the saints at Ephesus. Listen, two years of, of ministry was coming to a close and he was going to celebrate Easter with them. Listen, everything we do ultimately rests on the foundation of the gospel. Ministry does not make sense apart from the gospel. Paul's travels didn't make sense apart from the truth that Jesus had been risen our giving of time and resources doesn't make sense apart from the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our persistence when it seems like no one is listening makes no sense apart from the gospel. Listen, the church is encouraged when we partner together, but notice this as we travel with Paul and his companions to this new location. He's going to stay there for seven days, it says. And we see this, the church is encouraged when we gather. The church is encouraged when we gather together. What happens in this new location is, is Paul arrives there, and he spends seven days. And so by the time we get to verse 7, he's at the end of that week. When it says the first day of the week, what it's saying there is he's been there really the whole time. Okay, And so when he's gathering with them that first day of the week, this is so important. This is the first reference we have in the New Testament of believers gathering intentionally on one particular day. And we understand that day to be Sunday. Sunday. This is the first evidence of that in the New Testament. And so they're gathering together to worship the Lord, and they do three things here. First of all, we gather to observe communion. We gather to observe communion. We did this a few weeks ago, and guess what? We're going to do this on Christmas Eve night. I invite you. It, I know it's busy Christmas Eve, but between 5 and 7 p.m. on Christmas Eve, I'll be here at the church and I'll have a, a devotion for you to walk through with your family, and I will serve communion to your family. It's a really special time for us to walk through. Listen, here's why communion is important. Communion is important because it's a reminder of Christ's work on the cross, first of all. It's also a reminder of our privilege to be at the Lord's table. God has done a good work. And ultimately, it's a reminder of our unity. We are one body together. 
Listen, when we gather for communion, the size of our bank accounts doesn't matter. When we gather for communion, our status as single or married doesn't matter. When we gather for communion, our disagreements are laid to the side and we are unified as a body. I ran across this story to illustrate how the Lord's Supper paints a picture of unity. Listen to this story. At the end of the Civil War in Richmond, Virginia, on the Sunday after Appomattox and the surrender, a worship service was held in the historic Episcopal church there. It was an old church that had a balcony where the slaves of the owners had sat for many years with their masters and their families sitting downstairs. The practice in this particular church had been to have two calls for the Lord's Supper. One first for the white folks that were downstairs and then one for the slaves that were upstairs. But on this given Sunday, at the first call to communion, an older black man, a former slave, began down the central aisle right after the call. Naturally enough, there was surprise and shock downstairs. But what was even more of a shock was when an elderly, white, bearded gentleman got up, hooked his arm in the arm of the former slave, and they went forward and took communion together. That man was Robert E. Lee. There was forgiveness and healing and reunion at the table that day. And thereafter, there was no more segregated communion. Listen, when we come to the Lord's table... Differences are laid aside. Our cultural contexts are laid to the side. Why? Because we are one body of believers. And so that's what they were doing in this upper room. It says they gathered on the first day of the week and they assembled to break bread. But notice this also. We gather to hear the word. We gather to hear the word. Now, some of you, as I was reading this to you, your eyebrows raised because the length of Paul's sermon is made pretty obvious. It says that he preached until midnight, okay? So he preached for many, many hours, and then this event happened that we're going to look at in a moment where this young man fell asleep and fell out the window, and then they rose him from the dead, and they came back upstairs, and guess what it says? Paul kept preaching until dawn. Now, I could say this morning with reasonable certainty that this is, an advo- this is advocating for, hey, we can preach as long as we want to on Sundays, but I'm not going to go there. Really, it talks about the seriousness of gathering around the Word of God. It it talks about why this was serious to them and why it should be serious to us as well. So just a few points of application for you. It teaches how we should approach the hearing of the Word. Three ways we should approach this. First of all, anticipation. We should anticipate that we are reading the Word of God. That when we come into this room, we're going to pray We're going to sing songs of worship and praise. And listen, we ultimately will come to this occasion every single week, and we're going to read the Word of God, we're going to hear the Word of God, and we're going to apply the Word of God. Secondly, we got to listen with attentiveness. Now, that's really funny when you consider what happened to this young man, but but really, in reality, this means that, that we really, all jokes aside, We need to take seriously that we're going to be attentive to the hearing of the Word of God. Listen, I got the best seat in the house right here. When I look across this room on Sundays, I want you to know I don't look over the tops of your heads on Sunday. A lot of you know this. I make eye contact a lot. I see your attentiveness. I understand. I can get in the car with Cherie on Sunday afternoon and she'll say, man, that was good. And I'll say, should have told them that. 
Or, or, I'll, or, or I might get in the car and I'll be feeling down, but I'll be reminded that as I looked across the room, you were still with me. You were listening. You were engaged. You were in- attentive. Listen, here's what this means. We would prepare a certain way. Say, say, for example, you had an important job interview the next day. All right, so maybe you're going to work tomorrow or you're going to go into a job interview tomorrow. Tonight, you're going to do some things to prepare for that job interview. You're going to get a good night's rest. You're not going to stay up all night cheering on the Bulldogs or whoever it might be. Listen, I'm going to cheer them on just like you are. But listen, you're going to come here prepared. Or you're going to come to that job interview prepared. But guess what? You've got to come to worship the same way. Be prepared to be attentive. Be ready to be attentive. Bring a Bible with you. My goodness, bring a Bible. And, and at the very least, as you follow along in the word of God, guess what? You might be dozing off, but every time I say, look back at the text, that's your anchor point to say, oh man, there's something else. Be attentive. Be excited. Engage with the word of God. And this last one's for me, and I want you to know, I'm going I'm to give it to you because I want you to know I take it seriously from this passage. It takes a lot of preparation to preach all night long. I couldn't imagine I could not imagine if someone said, I got done after 35, 40 minutes, and somebody said, hey, is that it? It takes a lot of preparation to do that. And so I have to take seriously my preparation. I hope you see that. I hope you understand that this is not sometimes just shooting off at the cuff. Now, verses 8 through 12 contain the bulk of the action, and we were all anxious to get to this event. But really, there's one main idea that's illustrated from everything that happens in these last verses. And here it is. We gather to celebrate a miracle. We gather to celebrate a miracle. There's this young man named Eutychus. You saw it. They're up there in this upper room, and there's the setting described in verse 8. It says they were on a third-story uh, building, it says, and, and, or the third-story room there, and there were lamps that were lit, and so obviously it was at night. Since there were many lamps in the room, it was trying to, to you know, light the room so everyone could stay engaged. Then we see in verse 9, this gentleman introduced, this young man. And here's what's funny about this. I, I just cackled when I read this this week, and I verified it in a number of sources. The name Eutychus means lucky one. <laughs> Poor fella. The lucky one fell out the window. And, and so, you know, he falls out the window because he fell asleep. And, and I want you to, don't miss this, it's a, it's a detail and we overlook it, but it's important. It says he died. A lot of people look at this miracle in the New Testament, a lot of liberal scholars, biblical scholars, will look at this and say, well, let's read between the lines here. It never really said he, he died all the way, and does it really say that Paul rose him from the dead? Listen, I want to make a statement as a conservative pastor. Yes, he in fact died, and yes, he in fact rose from the dead. Verse 10, Paul comes downstairs and this young man's laying there dead on the ground and there's a picture painted of resurrection. If you look into the Old Testament, it's a picture very similar to the prophets Elijah and Elisha. You can go look at that. It's similar to the picture in the New Testament of Peter and even Jesus. Listen, the miracle validated Paul's teaching in ministry. And then what followed in verses 11 and 12 was a celebration. It says there in verse 11, they broke bread and they ate. And so you say, well, they broke bread up there before in verse 7. Yes, but it doesn't say they ate. 
They broke bread. They celebrated communion. But here it says they ate. And the picture here, most people agree, is they did more than just communion. They had a good time. They fellowshiped together. They ate together. They were celebrating together. And then it says in verse 12, they were greatly comforted by everything that had happened. I want to make sure we tie this to Jesus. I want to make sure you see this. You say, well, listen, pastor, I come to church each week, and, and you're telling me to be excited and engaged, and there's nobody falling out windows and dying, and you're not raising anybody from the dead. I'm not excited anymore. Listen, when we gather, we celebrate the greatest miracle that's ever happened. When we sing, we worship because of the greatest miracle that's ever happened. When we read this word with enthusiasm, anticipation, we read it because of the greatest miracle that ever happened. 2,000 years ago, Jesus went to a cross, and he died, make no mistake. And then three days later, make no mistake, that tomb was empty because he was risen. We don't need to raise anyone else from the dead today. We don't need to perform miracles. Y'all know you've heard me say this a thousand times we don't need to lay hands on people and see lives changed physically. Those are great things if they happen, but that's not what our faith hinges on. Our faith is built on the bedrock of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we have much to celebrate. The greatest encouragement we have is celebrating that together. I'll go back to where we started. Our mission to reach a spiritually dying world, a spiritually blind world, becomes all the more discouraging every single day. And we talked about the reasons for that. And then we've seen this picture of encouragement, and we've applied this and said, we also need to be encouragers. And so I want to go back to those two questions that you wrote down, or those two statements, rather. Those two reasons why we find encouraging others difficult. First of all, I want to meet you here. Perhaps we're too busy to slow down and encourage others. You got too much going on. Listen, slow down. Take a moment. Take a deep breath this morning. Don't look ahead to the rest of the week. Don't think about the burdens of tomorrow. Just for a moment, reconsider the people that God has placed in your life. I want you to think about it this way. Who is the one person in your life today that you've been missing out on offering encouragement to? Don't let the, the sun set on today before you encourage them. It might be a spouse. It might be a sibling. It might be a co-worker. It might be a child. Don't let the sun set on today without encouraging somebody. But lastly, that second reason, perhaps we're too absorbed with our own struggles to encourage others. I want to tell you something liberating in light of that. There's an opportunity every single week, and we invite you to do this. There's an opportunity for you to lay your burdens, your struggles at the feet of Jesus. You don't have to walk out of this room burdened every week. You don't have to walk out of this room concerned about the state of your soul or, the, or your eternity. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time you had real peace? Have you ever really been at peace? Don't leave today without being at peace. Because guess what? You being at a real encouragement to others hinges on you first being at peace. 
You can't encourage someone else genuinely until you are first reconciled with peace. And so as we sing in just a moment, I encourage you to consider the state of your heart. Bring those burdens to Jesus. If you've never confessed Jesus as your Savior, let today be that day. Let us know you want to make that decision to trust and follow Jesus. And listen, everything makes sense in light of the resurrection. Your life will be forever changed as you submit your life to following and trusting Jesus.